don't be afraid to take risks. I think that both in terms of my personal life, my professional life, as well as how I invest. I'm not afraid to take risks, but want to be mindful of the downside. There are certainly times that as I've pointed out where I didn't know what I didn't know. And you have to be comfortable with the idea that there will always be things that you don't know. But that shouldn't mean that you're not afraid to take a risk. Ethan Devitt, and welcome to the 50 Faces podcast, a podcast committed to revealing the richness and diversity of the world of investment by focusing on its people and their stories. I'm joined today by Caroline Lovelace, who is CIO and co-portfolio manager of Preserver Partners and previously founded Rose Hill Park Alternative Asset Managers. Preserver is diverse-owned and Memphis-based. It runs a multi-strategy fund that invests through external managers. She's had an extensive career in researching and investing in hedge funds and in promoting emerging private equity and hedge fund investment programs. Welcome, Caroline. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here with you. Well, let's start by talking about your background and career journey. Can you talk us through where you grew up and what you studied? Sure. I actually grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and my parents moved there after I was born outside New York City. So grew up in a really kind of a small environment. My stepfather was an educator. I actually spent a lot of time at the University of Pittsburgh hanging out with his graduate students, which was always kind of funny, but it really sort of engrossed me in the academics, the academic kind of culture of just studying and research and exploration, which was incredibly helpful to my further development. He was also on the school board. And my mother was a social worker who in the end, actually became a program director for foundations. So one of her her last programs has been adopted by several places across the country and still is very active in Pittsburgh. So I actually quote her as kind of, and I didn't know it at the time, but she actually gave me my first lessons in how foundations work. She would talk about how she was getting funding, funding for her programs from the investment side, And I can remember thinking about how they didn't interact. And at the time, it didn't occur to me that that was even important as a kid. But later on, I remember, wait a second, I remember that now as a kind of an interesting way to understand how some of the investors that we talk to and how how they function. So went to public schools in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had a fantastic public school education programs, a lot of honors programs, and then ended up going to Harvard for my undergrad and studying economics. And that again was, I mean, I, I think, I mean, a lot of people know about Harvard and have, a, have their opinions. For me, it was the best place to really not just explore everything that an education it had to offer. I thought I was interested in finance. I always loved numbers. I was a math camp geek growing up. So spent summers doing calculus and stuff like that. But when I got to Harvard, I wanted to study economics. And what I realized is that I was grateful for the opportunity to not just do kind of your standard economics, but also I thought about, well, I was also interested in the world. My father actually worked for Pan Am. He was in the finance department. So I grew up with this concept of the world being a very small place, even coming from Pittsburgh. The idea that you could just, because of employee travel benefits, you could just jump on a plane was something that really formulated an idea for me about not just about 
me personally, having been able to travel a great deal as a kid, but also made the world and different economies look very, that that was something that I'd seen firsthand. So one thing I was really interested in was Asia. I studied Chinese in middle school and I was an exchange student in Japan in high school. And so one of the things I wanted to explore and Harvard gave me that opportunity was to explore economics and economic history in Asia. So I was able to do that, tack that onto my studies in economics, which is great when you have a liberal arts education, be able to pick and choose. But I also got interested in the European Union, which is something that we weren't really focused on in the U.S., obviously. But understanding that the precursor to the European Union and the European rate mechanism and all the different. And from the U.S., we always thought about it as becoming the United States of Europe, because we sort of push our perspective onto sometimes to other countries. That was something that fascinated me as well. So as I went through my education at Harvard, picked up on finance and wanted to, like a lot of my peers, go into investment banking, I thought, well, why do it in New York? I, I'd like to do it in London. I'd like to see some of this stuff up front. And I talked when I was have did, doing interviews later, I had to realize that how naive I was. I mean, this is pre a lot of the internet where you could really research these things. And I'm glad that I didn't because I, because actually it's, it's hard for your first job to go to London. It actually is, you have work permit issues and all sorts of stuff like that. And I just didn't know it was hard. I just thought, well, it's something I want to do. So I'm going to try and pursue it. Having the opportunity with my dad to fly to London and do interviews, I just said, okay, I'm going to write to people alumni and whoever, and just see who will meet with me. And so I would go over to London and meet with people. And I was lucky enough to find an alumni at UBS, an American guy, Mike Lehman, who was willing to take me on. I mean, UBS at the time had just bought, UBS, the Swiss bank had bought a broker called Phillips and Drew. And so they were building out their investment banking Europe team in London. And they didn't have an analyst program, which at the time, I should have scared me because as it turned out, I was the only analyst for a while. I mean, it was total upside down pyramid structure, but it brought me over. I was able to get a short-term work visa independently, which they didn't extend it. So there I was. And then after, but I mean, I just didn't, I'm glad I didn't know it was hard because I maybe wouldn't have attempted it. And so maybe that's one of the first lessons I learned is yes, understand the risks and have a plan, but don't be so deterred by the difficulties because you probably won't try it. And I think the most important thing is you may fail a lot, but you should at least try it because sometimes it does work out. So I spent three years at UBS and that was really an amazing, amazing experience. Not only did I get the same in-depth experience that my peers did in New York in terms of investment banking, which you know is a fantastic way to just get knee deep into finance and you work a lot of hours, but you learn a lot very quickly. You get a lot of exposure. Being the only analyst actually turned out to be a good thing. On the first day, Mike Lehman said to the whole team, this is Caroline Lovely. She's going to be our analyst joining the team, but you cannot dump on her. And I was kind of, at the time, I was kind of shocked by the fact that he said it, but I was so grateful in the end because it meant that one, I could get involved in very attractive projects if I wanted to, but at the same time, he would manage the making sure that I wasn't pulled into all sorts of grunt work 
or I was so overwhelmed that I couldn't function. And he also sat me right across from a guy named who I became very close friends with. He actually taught me sitting at my desk with me, my first DCF. And so he became my financial modeling and guru. So I guess the next lesson was have a lot of support. I mean, just find your mentors and find people who not only are willing to support you, but specifically it's about finding people who, one, their egos are in check, but all of us in finance have egos. The point was that for all of these people, they thought it reflected well on them if I did well. So they knew they were doing bigger and better things than you know an analyst on the team. But they knew that it would reflect well on them if I did well, and it was important to them that I did well. So I ended up getting promoted to associate after two years and got, had such a really fantastic experience. David Learn, who was you know sat across from me and taught me the DCF, as well as Colin West, who became my boss after Mike Lehman, who sort of brought me with him on his interesting projects. So people who are really supportive of me. And I decided very early on, though, that I was going to go back to U.S. to go back to business school. So made the decision to, to, to come back to Wharton. The firm was really supportive of that, even though I already had a permanent job to stay at UBS in London. And Wharton, in the end, was the best place for me. One, to get back into the States. I found out that people sort of perceived me, even though I was an American citizen, as almost European in my work outlook. So it was really going to be my first job in the U.S. and ended up at J.P. Morgan. And really, I did that because I wanted to make sure that I was at a firm that had a really interesting and robust U.S. exposure, but also had a lot of international work as well. So started in the investment banking group and then quickly moved onto the buy side. So any surprising terms? I mean, that was another surprising term because... I originally, I was kind of, I really liked investment banking. People thought I was nuts, but I was kind of, I really liked it. Maybe it's because I had such a positive experience at UBS, but I really liked investment banking. I liked uh, it too. I actually liked it too. I don't find it that unusual. I think a little bit it comes from the kind of people that it attracts. I mean, clearly you were lucky enough to work with some extraordinary driven, yet intellectually curious, collaborative teams. And there's just a high that comes from that. Yeah. And there's a huge high that comes from that. And it just feeds the intellectual curiosity that I think you, know, you come to it from an academic background that feeds academic curiosity and research and that sort of thing. And then you see it in your workplace and you, it just feels really like home. But at the time, Morgan Capital, the, the buy side of private equity buy side of JP Morgan was growing and they needed someone to work in financial services that I had. And I had experience from UBS and early on at, at JP Morgan working with financial institutions, particularly insurance companies. I remember getting a classmate of mine in my JP Morgan class, also from Wharton, called me up and said, this Australian guy who was running Morgan Capital globally, who specifically had an interest in diversity. So he, in all of his searches around the bank to bring people into Morgan Capital, he specifically said, I want to make sure that there are candidates that are diverse. So women, people of color, and at the time, that's the first time I'd even even really thought about it. I mean, it's true that in business school, you try and use whatever in or whatever kind of perspective you can to get the interviews and all those sort of stuff. That's just normal. But in terms of in the workplace, specifically looking for diverse candidates, that was the first time I'd, I'd seen that. 
And so he recruited a guy from my class, a black guy. He then contacted, and then he also got someone else in Morgan Capital sort of fundraising side, also a black guy from my class. And then he reached out to me because I needed something on the FIG team. And I was actually initially hesitant. I said, I like my clients. I like the, like the team in investment banking. And so I said, so he said, just come on. That's, that's ridiculous. This is, the, this is where everyone wants to be. Come down and just talk to the team. And so I ended up talking to the team. And I really loved the woman who I was going to be working for, a woman named Merle Hartsband. And Merle Hartsband at the time was probably the most successful managing director, the most successful portfolio manager in that slave in the bank worldwide. She was really a force to be reckoned with. And she had been the first person in Morgan Capital to also launch a separate capital fund. So as a third-party fund, not just investing, also offer JP Morgan's balance sheet. So I kind of like them. And I finally said, and they look, is that my friend was kind of, you're ridiculous. You, this is, you have to come down here. You have to come down here. So I said, yeah, I come down and I just loved everyone. The team was fantastic, incredibly collaborative, incredibly supportive. Everyone really, even from managing director down to analyst, spending late nights, analyzing, collaborating, helping each other. And I remember my friend coming back to my desk and said, I just want you to let me know when I can tell you I told you so. Because yeah, I was kind of, yeah, okay, you told me so. It's, yeah, this is, this is actually, it's great being on the buy side because as you know, on the buy side, there's no, we call, investment banking, we used to call it the do button. So a client calls you up at Friday at five o'clock and says, oh, I'm glad I caught you because I just, can you just do something for me? And they have no idea that it, you've just ruined your weekend. On the buy side, there's no do button, but a lot of the work is the same, but you're also invested. So you stick with the deals that you do. And some people like that. Some people don't. I really like that. I really like the idea that you don't pass the deal on and whatever happens, happens. You have to run with it. And some of the deals that I was put on, existing deals I put on much like when I got to Morgan Capital were really bad. I mean, they had gone just sideways. And so the most pleasant experiences, but you have to learn that early on with bad investments. Why did they go wrong? How can you fix them? How do you work with management teams in stressful situations? I mean, all those sort of things are really important. And those are things that I learned early on. Now, some fantastic yeah. lessons there and, and some great words of wisdom being collected already. We are now going to take a short break to speak with the sponsor of this series about what it is that makes them unique. I sat down with Tom Raber of Alvine Capital. So Alvine Capital has a unique business model that you call reverse inquiry. Can you tell us what reverse inquiry means? When we were marketing or softly marketing funds, we realized that some institutional investors felt that they were being pushed and every call was the same as the one they had just had. And we felt that we had to have another approach to institutional investors. And so we tried to really go behind the scenes and ask them, what exactly are you looking for? If you had a dream scenario and you had an opening in your fund, what would you like to have and how would that fund look? And when we got investors to open up and explain to us what they wanted, we then took down all the information we needed and we went out into the market. It's a pull sale rather than a push sale. You're actually helping the investor finding something that's better than they thought that they were looking for in the first place. 
in terms of your client base, so you work with a lot of Scandinavian and Northern European institutions. Is there anything on their mind today? We opened an office in Stockholm last year. We have Nordic roots. We have, obviously, uh, Nordic-speaking people in London as well. We've covered the region for many years. Yes, we know it very well. What are they looking for? What's happening up in that part of the world is that they're a leader in anything that's ESG and impact. Some very large institutions have decided not to do anything at all, unless it's completely impact, completely green. Everyone is looking for good, well-performing private equity and private credit funds. And we're fortunate that we're working with both uh, in both categories. At the moment, we have a very good selection there. And now, back to the show. Moving now to your, because now you're, you work with, you know, still on the buy side, but equally, there's a kind of buy side, sell side aspect, given that you are helping diverse asset managers who have to sell themselves, I suppose. So can you talk about the work you do at Preserver Partners and in particular, how that relates to emerging managers? Right. Well, Preserver Partners is interesting because it is an emerging manager, although it has a more than a decade long track record, which actually is indicative. What I've learned earlier in my career, I did a what I think is the most, the first comprehensive study of the diverse hedge fund manager space. And did that when I was working at a fund of funds called Provident Group, and we teamed up with HFR. And it was supposed to be, I just start from the beginning, no preconceptions. What is this? How many managers are there? What strategies and what characteristics? And one of the things that really stuck out is that diverse managers tend to have longer track records, but lower AUM. And Preserver is one of those kind of managers. And so at less than 200 million, it's small, but it has a long track record. So it actually has a really interesting investor base of smaller institutional investors that are more local. It's based in Memphis, as well as some attention from some of the national consulting firms. So that's really interesting. And a lot of times that I've been working with emerging managers, they've been very small. They've been either needing first dollar. And a lot of what I bring to the table, I think, in terms of advising them is how to start and specifically what kind of service providers do you need? How do you make a plan first off? Because I think what happens for a lot of new managers, small ones, as well as new ones that are trying to start, is they just want to get started. I mean, most of them have been successful PMs and they just want to get trading and they want to get investing and they also don't have a lot of money. So what they ended up doing is going from really inexpensive and maybe not as well-known, even though they may be highly qualified service providers. And what we've learned over time is institutional investors, particularly when you think about Madoff, one big thing with Madoff was a failure of service providers and a failure to diligence the service providers. So therefore, a big thing for a lot of external sort of consultants and, and institutional investors is, we're just going to take that off the table. We just want well-known people that we know. And that doesn't mean that they are going to be perfect, but it's kind of, we used to call, my dad used to call the IBM problem. Or now maybe it's the Apple problem. No one ever gets fired for investing in IBM or Apple. You may not make money, but you don't get fired for it. So that's kind of what happens. So talking to emerging managers about how you create a plan and also start in a way that makes sense for your future growth. Because your track record will not just be judged by your investment by your investment returns, but it'll also be judged by how you set up your business. And that's something that I think is new, is newer to 
when 20 years ago, you could set up with a Bloomberg and a guy and a couple guys and, and that would be it. I have a question though, because then this gets back to money. I mean, the definition of startup firm is not deep pocketed necessarily right. in the same way. And it might be natural that they can, especially with this great war for talent, they can yep. hire the best CFO out there and that there may be a need to outsource or, or yep. maybe go to a lower tier service provider. How do you sort of square that circle that, you know, you need yeah. to show blue chip, but maybe it's unaffordable. No, I think it's true. But I think it's generally true that the best named service providers are the most expensive, but it isn't always. I think that there have been a number of institutional quality service providers who have decided that working with emerging managers, given that there is a war on their side for administrators and, and for law firms and so forth to find the next most of the next successful managers, they are willing to say, well, we'll control costs in the near term, but be prepared to pay more if and when you get bit. And I think this has also been, particularly on the administrator side, been because of technology. A lot of the good administrators have invested heavily in technology. So it does mean that they are able to service a smaller funds cheaper because of technology. And so I think that means that they're willing to do that. So I think it is a question of going out and asking the question. I saw something, a trail on LinkedIn about, I guess, asking at a conference for a cheaper rate. And I was kind of, you just asked them. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I hadn't, I mean, even I hadn't really thought about it because it just feels like the price is what it is. I think, so going out to some of the larger service providers and asking them, and sometimes with the larger service providers, they have regional offices as opposed to talking to the people in New York, and they're more likely to give you a better deal. One of the things that, I mean, I learned this early on at a fund of funds that when I worked at, we had Deloitte as our auditor. People are going to now kind of flood into Deloitte and ask this question. But so at Deloitte, we had Deloitte as the auditor, but because the fund was BVI domiciled, we had Deloitte BVI. Now, Deloitte BVI is a lot cheaper than Deloitte New York, but the audit committee for all of the Caribbean is New York. So you're actually getting the same audit committee as you would do, but it's a lot cheaper because your, your team is in the BVI. I just, I mean, I think you just have to get kind of creative about how you access these, these service providers. And then lastly, I would say, develop a lot of relationships. As soon as you are even thinking about launching a fund or as you continue to join your fund, take time to just build relationships. Don't just talk to investors, talk to service providers as well, because there will be a service provider who you know who will find the way to kind of break. I mean, I know people who are more junior at certain service providers who are more senior now who I can call up and say, look, can you talk to this emerging manager? I think they're good. I mean, but they need a break. See what you can do for them because they could be very selective about that. So that's a long answer, but I think it's really about asking the question, looking for specific service providers that are willing to work with emerging managers. So as I gave the example of Deloitte, we also worked with SSNC, not to plug them both, but to say both of them have invested in technology and look for structures that they can service emerging manager clients. And then just in terms of clearly you add a lot of value there in the role at Preserver, you also hold a series of director and chair roles. And what do you seek to bring to those roles? Yeah, I mean, I think that I was, I mean, it's only recently, and I'm, I fault myself for this, that I've started to sit on the investment committees of, of say, right now it's a foundation. And I think one, you can bring just your broader experience, because what I found with these committees is that they tend to be 
staff very broadly. So some people have finance experience, some people have specific asset class experience. Some people bring to it really more the program kind of side or the philosophy of the institution. So that's a really interesting how all those things come together. So it's it's an education for me because when I talk to foundations as looking hopefully for an investment from them, I have a, a much better sense of what their constraints are as well as what their considerations are. But I think what I try and do is just bring my asset class experience and then also being able to dig down into the portfolio of some of the managers that we look at and understand where the drivers are. We had a recent conversation about some of our emerging markets managers who had seemed to out underperform. So we were listening to these conversations and I was thinking, wait a second. And they started talking about interest rate risk and obviously exchange rate. And I realized, wait a second. And I, I remember sending, typing in a, a message to the consultant saying, so tell me what is the breakout in terms of their investment, investment costs if you strip out the FX. And it turns out this manager actually had outperformed the US managers if you control for exchange rate risk. Now, exchange rate risk is obviously an important characteristic, but I think we were having a, the wrong conversation about this manager. We should have been having a conversation about whether or not we should be invested in emerging markets at all as opposed to the qualifications of this manager. So that sort of moved things in a different direction. So I think that that's what I try and bring to the table. Back then to the diversity question, because clearly you would have had experience of diversity throughout your career. You mentioned being the only analyst. So I suppose that, that was interesting in terms of there's maybe seniority, a lack of diversity there. Yeah. So what's your experience of the industry been? And then how do you see that now at the founder level and in the emerging fund level? How inclusive do you see our investment industry as being? Well, look, I mean, we have a diversity problem in asset management. That's clear. There's not enough diversity at the senior levels, particularly on the investment side. Obviously, we see more diversity on the service provider side and back office, uh, middle office, actually less middle office, but more back office as well as business development. I think that it's interesting. We've had over the course of my career, when I've been looking at diversity, certain spikes where interest level picks up and then it falls back, interest level picks up and it falls back for specific reasons. I think that a lot of people have focused on George Floyd as kind of a reckoning and not just in asset management, but across our society about diversity and what it means. And I do think that that focus has been interesting and different from previous spikes in interest because it really has focused not just the large institutional investors like big state pension plans that have long said, as you know, have, have focused on or had emerging manager or diversity programs in their investment goals and investment policy statements. But now, because George Floyd was really became sort of globally known, it forced corporate plans that hadn't thought about before, but particularly foundations and endowments to think about their investments. You know, it talks about how my mother really focus on the, you know, they wasn't even thinking about the investment side. The investment side was not thinking about the program side. They just wanted each other to do what they were supposed to do and leave the other alone. But what I thought about more than a decade ago was that, why is there that disconnect? And I thought at some point, at the firm that I was at Pine Street, a hedge fund seating firm that I co-founded, that we should have an intern come in someday and just look at all the top foundations and figure out which ones have a policy or program goal that focuses on diversity and then try and engage the investment committee as well as the investment team, as well as the board in trying to promote diversity across the aisle or you know, in the other office. 
that project never happened. We never got to that. But I think actually George Floyd forced, because it forced everyone to look at it, a lot of foundations and endowments are now looking at that as well. And I think that that is, and I've seen a lot of interest from foundations and endowments about increasing the diversity in their investment portfolios. So I think that's important because foundations and endowments often can write smaller checks. I mean, one of the big issues with large institutional investors is that whether or not they like a diversity or not, they can only write 100 million, 200 million or so checks. Whereas with foundations and endowments can write smaller checks and that can be a real engine of growth on the asset side for smaller managers. And I've seen that at Preserver. I mean, we have 10 to $20 million checks from a number of small pension plants, but also foundations and endowments. And that has actually been a driver of the institutional growth of the firm. So I think that's very important. And interesting though, as I looked into some of the data, the increasing interest in diversity, particularly for hedge funds, has started actually before George Floyd. It's been about four or five years where there's been consistent growth in terms of the amount of cumulative assets that are invested in diverse managers. So I do think that all the work that a lot of the academics have done, studies have been done by Chrysler by Night and other, you know, other organizations have really been chipping away at just the residents of, of people to, of, to look at it, the diverse managers and emerging managers in general. So I think that's quite important. I mean, you've probably seen the news in the last sort of the end of last year to early this year, where the first time that we think that a minority woman actually launched a fund with more than a billion dollars. I mean, that's very interesting and that's real progress. And interestingly enough, these are women who, if you get rid of their name and, and any sort of gender identifications, a lot of their background looks like a white guy who might've launched a fund 20 years ago because their pedigree is very similar. We can talk about how different that means their perspective is in terms of how they invest. But I think that certainly over the last five to 10 years, the slow progress of women and people of color at sort of more junior levels, as they start to move up, they're starting to want to launch their own firms. So I think that's really interesting. Hopefully that means that there's sustained interest in the space that, I mean, going from 0.8 to 1.6 of assets is still kind of paltry. But that's a really big denominator. Those are real assets that are moving. And I guess I would make one more point is that it's also interesting that there are now, I mean, I've even gotten just random inquiries on LinkedIn from international investors, from Europe, Canada, from even the Middle East, whoever really interested in diversity. I would say, and this is no disrespect to broadly to some investors outside the US, I'm not sure that they really care about diversity but they care about profit. And one of the things that we've always tried to stress is that investing with diverse managers does not mean sacrificing return. It actually means that you're just one, broadening the aperture so that you're looking at all managers as opposed to just some. And we've also seen through the data, and it's been consistent for 15 years, is that diverse managers as a whole outperform the broader indices. So you're never going to invest in all the managers in the indices, but if you're looking at the top quartile, then that means that you're going to, you really are setting yourself up for potentially for outsized returns. So I think all of that makes me hopeful at this point in time for diverse managers. That is very reassuring as you hear, especially the fact that the focus on the E, the S and the G is now expanding beyond the E in Europe. Just some very quick closing questions. Were there any key people who influenced you in your career and in what way? Any mentor or similar? Yeah, I mean, I spoke about some of them, certainly. 
at UBS really, I can imagine that it really set this tone for me in terms of maybe my expectations about what a mentor should be like, but also how to work with a mentor. So me and I spoke about, there's Brian Watson at JP Morgan, who was the Australian guy who was the first to bring me into JP Morgan and Meryl Hartsman, my first boss, Mike Lehman, who started me at, at UBS. But I would say also Howard Powers, who was my first boss at JP Morgan. I mean, I would say that one downside of it being at UBS and at that downside pyramid, I got invited to a lot of meetings and I spent a lot of time in the room with clients and got to meet them. But as the most junior person in the room, I didn't speak a lot. It wasn't for me to talk. And so I'd never learned as an analyst in my early career to be the one sort of leading the conversation and really probing. And it really wasn't so much until I got to Morgan Capital and my second boss was a guy named Howard Powers. And at the time, I had no idea. And I'm glad that I was another clueless moment in my career and that I was best that I didn't know. He actually kind of hooked me up with kind of a, she was a consultant who was supposed to teach me in, in the end, basically teach me to talk. Basically, you know, how to engage and be more proactive and, and all that sort of stuff. And I, I credit him for saying, okay, I like you. I think you're smart. I think you're qualified, but I'm willing to spend some time to help you get the additional skills you need to move forward in your career. And that was really key. Because then, I mean, I that I said, okay, well, if I'm supposed to talk and ask questions, I can do that. And one of the things I learned from Meryl Hartspan is she was one of the smartest investors I'd known, but she was not at all unwilling to look stupid in a way. There'd be this long conversation and she would just say, I don't get it. I just don't get it. And so I had to learn that, okay, basically I can say that. And it's actually really, even smart people don't understand. So let's have a conversation to get me there. I would say that those are the people in my career that were really influential in terms of helping me to, to get where I am today. And you've already laced this with lots of words of wisdom from the do button and finding something that doesn't involve the do button to areas where you're glad you didn't know things were hard because you may not have embarked on that adventure. But I'm wondering if you have any other kind of creed or motto or word of wisdom to leave us with. You know, I would say, don't be afraid to take risks. I think that both in terms of my personal life, my professional life, as well as how I invest. I'm not afraid to take risks, but want to be mindful of the downside. There are certainly times that, as I've pointed out, where I didn't know what I didn't know. And you have to be comfortable with the idea that there will always be things that you don't know. But that shouldn't mean that you're not afraid to take a risk. It shouldn't mean that you're not willing to try. But, you know, have a plan B. There's nothing wrong with having a plan B. Sometimes I think that people who are risk takers, or like, there's no plan B. That's something that I hear a lot. There's no plan B. There always should be a plan B. Because even if you're willing to take risks, you should be constantly evaluating whether or not that risk makes sense with new information that you have. Because there are times when if you don't, then you're just kind of continuing down a path that isn't working. And it doesn't mean that you can't get to the same goal but be willing to make changes to say, I made a mistake. This isn't working. Let's try something different to get where I need to go. Or in the end, you make a decision that it's just not going to work out. I think we learn as much from the failures as we do from our successes sometimes. So I would say that's something that I would really stress that's been important to me across the board. Well, Caroline, you have had an exhilarating life and I, I feel like almost a little breathless and listening to the various kind of courses and twists and turns and surprises it took. But I think you make a really interesting point about 
knowing things are hard, but yet not letting, yet I suppose the struggle sometimes being hard, but being inherently stimulating, enjoyable, and ultimately what makes us who we are. And yes. uh, I think that's the important balance I try to strike with these podcasts is not deterring people from taking those risks, but being realistic that even when they're in the midst of that struggle, other people have done it too and got through to the other side. So I think you've captured that beautifully. So thank you for coming oh, here. Thank you. thank you for sharing your insights with us. No, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I'm Ethan Devitt. Thank you for listening to the 50 Faces podcast. If you liked what you heard and would like to tune in to hear more inspiring personal journeys, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice and all views are personal and should not be attributed to the organizations and affiliations of the host or any guest.